Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It doesn't necessarily show that there was collusion in, um, in the scheme, but it shows that uh, Don Jr. was collusion curious. Look, I think Donald Jr.'s statements stand for themselves. This is evidence of willingness to commit collusion. Hello and welcome to TrumpCast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. TrumpCast is the show that has room in its big, warm embrace for anyone named Donald Trump, including Don Jr., the son of the President of the United States. We are way, way too decorous on TrumpCast to call him like Uday. We'll call him Jr. Jr. is the one who, a year ago, agreed to meet with the Russian government lawyer Natalia Veselnitskaya and was super psyched to have some stuff to add to the campaign slam book on Hillary Clinton. The New York Times scored the emails that set up the meeting, and when Jr. was told the Times was going to publish them, he tweeted the stuff himself, the emails himself. The emails are between Jr. and the very credible and dignified-looking Rob Goldstone, a British-born former tabloid reporter and entertainment publicist. So basically, you know, one of those admirals, saints, and doctors without borders, a man of great propriety and lawfulness. So here's how the emails went. Rob Goldstone wrote to Jr. on June 3rd, 2016 at 10.36 a.m. Good morning. The Crown Prosecutor of Russia, sidebar, there's no such thing, has offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia and would be very useful to your father. This is obviously very high-level and sensitive information, sidebar not sensitive enough that it doesn't belong on emails sent on iPhones, but is part of Russia and its government support for Donald Trump. How should we handle this information? Do you want to meet and talk about it in person? Not 20 minutes later, Junior fires back, Thanks, Rob. I appreciate that. If it's what you say, I love it, especially later in the summer. Could we do a call first thing next week when I'm back? Well, the emails turned into a meeting attended by Jared Kushner and also Paul Manafort, whom Jr. refers to as campaign boss. And the rest is fast-evolving history. Here to make some sense of this madness is Robert Bauer. He's an American attorney who previously served as White House counsel under President Barack Obama. But first, these messages. My guest today is Robert Bauer. Bauer, who served as White House counsel under President Barack Obama. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. So, Bob, you know how they say, uh, uh, people ask on Twitter, can you imagine what would have happened if uh, Obama had done X, Y, Z kind of thing that Trump does? Well, I'm going to ask you to imagine something. 
What would have happened inside Obama's White House if there had been revelations that, say, Malia Obama had communicated with, say, Iran to try to score dirty information about Mitt Romney? I suppose there's a first question, which is, you know, what are the chances that anything like that would have happened? I mean, I just want to pause for a second and say, Nobody can probably know for a long time to come, and maybe the question will never be answered, what sort of, you know, sort of complete breakdown in process allowed a meeting like the one that we saw reflected in the emails to occur. Um, It just seems to me that it had to have passed, you know, across a number of desks, and apparently against anything we might imagine uh, the probabilities would be, nobody said, I don't think this is a good idea. Uh, So that's one thing. Then you ask the question of, well, what would happen if the emails then surfaced, or there, there was a report in the newspaper about the emails, would I recommend that a client in those circumstances, you know, you provided a particular hypothetical, but I'll take it more generally than that, that they go ahead and, you know, post the emails in full on Twitter? Um, Probably not. I realize that uh, Donald Trump Jr. was trying to beat the New York Times to the punch. I accept that. I'm still not 100% sure for a variety of reasons what the strategy behind the disclosure was. It's not clear to me why the president then was advised that it was sensible for him to tweet out commendation to his son for his transparency. I mean, there's a phrase, the world gone mad. I mean, from a lawyer's point of view or from the point of view of somebody who's been exposed to reasonably disciplined process, both in the campaign world and in the executive branch, um, you know, all I, all I can do is remember you know, this has a Pink Panther feel to it. I mean, this sort of Peter Sellers comedy where I just, it's very hard to understand what's going on here. But what's not hard to understand is the intentions uh, of the participants in that meeting, uh, sort of what they understood about the meeting when they went into it, what they hope to get out of it, and how it might connect to other concerns we have about the uh, Trump administration's relationship to Russia and this campaign. So process is one thing, content is something else. So you've you, uh, there's there's certainly an argument and and people have wanted to pile on to Don Jr as being, you know, idiotic and arrogant and all these other things that this that his emails and activities might be primarily a personal problem that he was kind of acting out or or you know just uh just trying to be a free agent and that this may end with him getting detention or taking a long time out, but is not going to have broader implications. But but it sounds like you don't take that argument very seriously. It's very hard to take seriously for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, um, the suggestion that he was, if you will, going rogue and he was acting entirely on his own is belied by the fact that he invited successfully the campaign manager and a senior advisor of the campaign, the candidate's son-in-law, to the meeting, and they both attended. Also, they were copied on the emails in which the relationship of Russia to this venture was disclosed, the purpose of the meeting was disclosed, the identity of the individual they apparently knew nothing about was disclosed. She was described in those emails as a Russian government lawyer. I don't think this is a Donald Jr. problem. It may be a Donald Jr. problem in the sense that he'll have to answer for it uh, in one respect or another. He'll certainly give testimony. But what this becomes is a Trump organization problem. In other words, these were agents acting on behalf of a principal, which is the Trump campaign. And so what this episode reveals is that you don't have a series of sort of foolish entrepreneurs wandering around the landscape looking for Clinton dirt. You have what Many people suspected was the case, a concerted 
a strategic effort on the part of the Trump campaign to locate opposition research wherever they can. That, per se, by the way, is not exceptional. Campaigns do that all the time, but willing to do so in collaboration with a foreign government. And can you think of any time past where maybe through a third party or or someone representing him or herself as acting independently as not acting as an agent of a government can you ima- can you remember any time that you've known about a meeting like that not not Obama but just historically speaking so that we can imagine if there's precedent there you know earlier today I told somebody that I hadn't remembered anything and then it came to me I did remember uh, something like this it's not quite the same thing but it's close enough. And that was what has been revealed now, um, I think, with fairly consistent accuracy and documentation to have been the Nixon campaign's collusion with the South Vietnamese government in 1968 to stall on a peace process that was thought to be potentially beneficial to Nixon's opponent, Hubert Humphrey. Hmm. And there were intermediaries, American nationals, with um, ties to the South Vietnamese government who were used to communicate back and forth between the campaign and the South Vietnamese government. Now, I don't remember every detail of this, but the gist of it is, and there are a number of recent books about Nixon that document it, that it's fairly clear that the Johnson administration discovered that the Nixon campaign was urging the South Vietnamese not to reach an agreement about peace talks uh, for fear that in the waning days of the campaign, it would be the booth that Humphrey needed. And in fact, as you recall, uh, Humphrey lost, but by a hair. The election was a lot closer than it had originally been projected. And Johnson knew about it, confronted Nixon on it, uh, and Nixon denied it, which wasn't true. And whether it had an effect on the outcome of the election, I don't know. But that was a clear case of a collaboration of a campaign with a foreign government to achieve a campaign objective. Now, do you think it's important, I mean, you said whether it had an effect on the outcome of the election, who knows? The same is true of the Watergate break-in. Um, I think most concerned don't think that that turned up any information that influenced the campaign and, and the election. But is it important in this case that Junior didn't get any of the dirt he was seeking? I mean, he keeps saying, well, if it didn't go anywhere, then then it's not criminal. Then it was just a fool's errand. There are there are a couple of weaknesses in his argument, uh, in his position. Um, one is sort of a narrow weakness, the other one is a broader weakness. And if I, if I could, let me break them out. The narrow weakness is that in my view, at a minimum, even with the information uh, not being what he thought it would be at the meeting, the email exchange coupled by the meeting potentially constitutes under the federal campaign finance laws an illegal solicitation of a foreign national. A foreign national came and said, I wonder whether you'd be interested. We might have information of the following kind. The campaign says, let's set up a meeting. Let me hear what you have, because as Donald Trump Jr. says in one of the emails, if if it is what you say it is, I love it. Mm -hmm. Then the meeting takes place, and the wares that were displayed apparently were not to his liking, or whatever she said he has subsequently told us. And of course, this is his account. Didn't make any sense. It was vague. But clearly was communicated, was clearly communicated on the part of the campaign, an interest in having the Russians give them whatever they had that might be useful in discrediting uh, Hillary Clinton. And given the very broad definition of what constitutes a solicitation under the federal campaign finance laws, it seems to me that's clearly a problem. Then there's a broader concern here that this meeting, and this is where I think Trump's confidence that this doesn't amount to much, Trump Jr.'s confidence is misplaced. This meeting evidences whatever the outcome was, that the Trump campaign was aware 
and believed that the Russian government was looking to find ways to support the Trump campaign, that it was offering to be helpful, and the Trump campaign was open to that. And so to the extent that we look at all the activities, public and private, over the course of the balance of the campaign, or not just the balance of the campaign, what came before and what came afterward, then we have, it seems to me, a pretty clear-cut case here of intent, uh, a, a willingness to work with the Russian government toward the shared goal of Donald Trump winning the White House. So the one example I'll give you just right now off the top of my head is only a few weeks later, in the third week of July, Donald Trump himself calls on the Russians publicly to locate the stolen emails, uh, the stolen or the, the stolen and supposedly deleted emails of Secretary Clinton. He says, "You know, I hope you're listening. Will you find them?" This is the this is the the Trump the Trump's family strategy of uh, doing cloak and dagger work without the cloak. Yeah, they- <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. But the curious part is uh, later it was said, "Well, you know, it was a joke." He was just joking. That was the defense. Well, now, when you look back at what happened previously, these private communications, which after all are the only ones we have, there may be others, uh, it casts a completely different light on this joke. It suggests it wasn't a joke at all. And then if we also examine how over the course of the campaign, again, just working with what we know, Trump wouldn't acknowledge that the Russians were interfering. That's odd because there was a letter to his son saying that's, in fact, exactly what they were doing. And he wouldn't denounce them for interfering. He wouldn't condemn them. He wouldn't ask them not to do it. These emails, I I think, color the interpretation of a lot of other facts and I think connect a number of dots uh, in a way that uh, I think belies the confidence that Donald Trump Jr. has that this was a, you know, I don't recall who said it recently, but maybe it was Ryan's previous said it was a nothing burger. I think, frankly, the prosecutor and the Congressional Investigating Commissions will find it quite nourishing. <laughs> so also, you know, in the in the uh, sort of breaking down the Trump defense, which, you know, amounts to a bunch of tweets by them and their um, cohort, is um, is it does it matter who called the meeting? If Natalia Veselnitskaya, the, the Russian government lawyer, or if Don, Donald Trump Jr. called it? Um, I think Veselnitskaya has said, although this doesn't seem to be borne out in the emails, that they were quite eager to meet um, and were, you know, hardly kind of dragged into this meeting as a as a favor to Goldstone. Does it matter who called the meeting? I guess that's the point. Leaving outside the emails, but just just as a as a point of law. No, I, I don't think either on both of the points that I raised with you, the sort of the broad point and the narrow point. I don't think it matters in the least. On the broad point, it's still very clear that whether it was initiated on the Russian side or initiated on the Trump side, in either case, uh, the Trump campaign evidenced a willingness to entertain campaign support from a foreign government. And on the narrow point, I can assure you that under the regulations of the Federal Election Commission, whoever put out the first suggestion of a meeting uh, doesn't matter to whether or not it's ultimately considered to be an illegal solicitation. But there's one broader context here within which these individual episodes, I think, are appropriately evaluated. And that is, we know, for a, just for a fact, uh, that the Trump campaign viewed as its strategic imperative acquiring what it believed to be smoking gun discrediting information about Hillary Clinton. Their game plan included, to a large extent, continually reminding uh, prospective voters they hope to attract that she was 
a proto-criminal of some sort, that she should have been prosecuted. She should be locked up. He, at one point, candidate Trump, said that he was going to direct a prosecution of Hillary Clinton. And they were very, very anxious to pursue that as what I think they thought was what was perhaps most essential to whatever prospects of victory that he had. And if anyone looking at this as a case, you know, takes that into account, what it suggests and what, what and, and how it ultimately provides some sort of narrative overview of all the individual pieces of evidence is that they were motivated to do whatever it took to find and put out that kind of discrediting information. And it is a theme that runs throughout the entire campaign. Now, this is not a one-off, this experience reflected in the emails. This is not an isolated episode where all of a sudden he thought, well, that's an interesting suggestion. Maybe I'll talk to these people. I suspect we would find, if we looked at the internal email traffic or campaign strategic documents, that this was one of the one of the leads, if you will, one of the sort of strategic imperatives, strategic goals that mattered as much and probably more than any other. I mean, you have a less prosecutorial cast of mind, which I'm grateful for than uh, than sometimes guests on here. Maybe I'm inclined to. But it still seems that while we're talking about Russian meddling in the election, which seems to have been seems to be well established and we're hinting at a discussion of collusion that we're also, we really are bordering on a conversation about treason, meaning that the that collusion and meddling worked. And now, you know, that Jared Kushner also went on that meeting, still has national security clearance. Now that he's talked about establishing a back channel post, uh, post-election victory, that now we have, in some ways, who cares what happened a year ago? We have trouble on our hands. We have... Trump just met with Putin. How much should that be topic A? You know, sort of, I mean, I know that we're very systematically going over the meddling and then collusion issues, but but what about this broader, more pressing issue of, do we have a Russian agent for a president? Well, I think, you know, what you're raising is the question of, you know, do we have here in a very unusual respect, because it involves a foreign national, the concern that maybe for other reasons, but certainly because of the campaign support that he got from them, uh, Donald Trump owes something to the Russians. You know, that, that first of all, he came uh, to the relationship predisposed to like them, maybe because of their prior involvement with him in his business. Then they proved to be, you know, helpful to him. We can't know what effect all of this had on the election, but I'm sure he was grateful for the support from that quarter. That's fairly clear from the email exchange and the showing of the senior campaign brass at that meeting. And so then the question is, you know, do we have at work in the way he thinks about American national interest, some accrued gratitude uh, to the Russians for both their business largesse and for their political favors shown to him? And I think that is, you know, that's a legitimate concern. I mean, I mean more than a legitimate concern. Uh, obviously, there are a variety of reasons why we prohibit foreign nationals from attempting to influence the outcome of elections. But all the way back to the founding, uh, there has been uh, a profound concern. Recently, by the way, you know, the Supreme Court took up a case on this issue and sort of roundingly affirmed the point, a profound concern with protecting the integrity of decision-making within our political community so that the outcome of American elections are decided by Americans. Can you review that Supreme Court case for me? Because I, I, I don't know. I didn't follow it. Yes. Well, there's a case that decided not too long ago, just a few years ago, 
uh, post-Citizens United, by the way, uh, decided by the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia and affirmed by the Supreme Court entitled Blumen versus Federal Election Commission. And it involved two individuals, one a Canadian citizen and one with dual Canadian and Israeli citizenship, if I remember correctly, who challenged um, the law's prohibition on their making any contribution whatsoever to a political campaign in the United States. And that their view was that zeroing them out completely when, you know, they might want to give to a local official or a small amount to a congressional candidate or whatever violated their rights, that it was, it was unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court, the United States Court of Appeals held against them and the Supreme Court affirmed. And the U.S. Court of Appeals decision is very, very remarkable for its emphasis on the unique nature of the state interest in keeping foreign national influence out of the electoral process. Mm -hmm. That this is something, uh, this involves a fundamental conception and definition uh, of what the court referred to as the American political community. That, That had to be delimited in some way for democracy to function and to produce legitimate results. And therefore, even if it meant that this, you know, a couple of perfectly, you know, reasonable individuals without nefarious intent, you know, one a Canadian, one a Canadian-Israeli, couldn't make a $150, $250 contribution, well, so be it, because we had to protect this conception of the American political community. So there is a, you know, there's a very, very strong interest that works here, and that makes it different uh, from the normal um, campaign finance uh, or election influencing case. And it ties into the concern that you expressed about what it might mean to allow um, election influencing activity by foreign governments and then have office holders who, rather than being responsive to an American you know, electoral constituency, might be influenced by the interests of foreign powers. And as you know, all the way back to the founding and specific provisions of the Constitution that address that concern about you know, foreign powers having some control over the actions of elected officials, this is a long-standing issue in American constitutional and legal history. Um, I also want to ask you to just, as an explainer, tell me where the treason word and laws against it stand in relation to today's and yesterday's revelations. In truth, you know, I know that uh, Senator Kane uh, mentioned that, you know, that has to be considered. I don't know what he had in mind. I haven't honestly looked at it. I've been entirely focused on just straight up campaign law problems that are presented by a campaign that cooperates with a foreign government. So I don't have anything terribly informed to tell you about that. I, obviously, uh, that is an issue that that's an issue now that, that that having been raised also brings you in mind of the sorts of offenses that could be raised in an impeachment proceeding. But I don't know that Senator Kane had that in mind. I didn't hear the full the full range of his comment on that and whether he meant that as well or not. Um, well, I for your meticulous and measured treatment of this this the last two stressful days, I'm really really grateful. Are you worried for the fate of our nation? That's my final question for you. It's, it's, it's interesting that you put the question that way. I, you know, everybody likes it, almost now to the point of, of just overflow, you know, quoting Benjamin Franklin on the point that we have a Republican, but only if we can keep it. You know, I, I actually have a lot of confidence that we have institutions that can contend uh, with strains on the system like this and misconduct that can put strain on the systems like this. I mean, I lived through as, as you know, I, I was young, but I still 
you know, hung on every word, followed every development in Watergate, and have spent a lot of time studying it since. And there were huge stresses, to say the least, on the system over the whole period of time, which in the aggregate is referred to as the Watergate episode. Truthfully, I think we're entirely up to it. Uh, this isn't good. This isn't good for government. It isn't good for the credibility of the United States and its capacity to address, obviously, you know, very significant issues that are waiting to be addressed and have been waiting in many cases too long to be addressed. And these questions are going to get resolved, and I think they will be squarely confronted. So nobody, you know, should take these sorts of upheavals lightly, to say the least. And I think there's what's sometimes called in the corporate sector a good after-action report when this is all done and resolved that needs to be prepared on a whole host of issues. But I'm not worried that we don't have the capacity as a democracy to handle this problem, this set of issues, to get to the bottom of what happened and then to come up with appropriate resolutions. I am so grateful for your confidence, Bob, and and your time. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that's our show for today. But come on, before we take off, are you following Trumpcast on Twitter? I know you're following some other political podcasts, but you've got to follow at Real Trumpcast. So accept no substitutes. Follow us at Real Trumpcast on Twitter. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon. I'm Virginia Heffernan, and thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.